Welcome to The Backbone, a journey inside finance at a startup. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. On The Backbone, we're obsessed with finance and operations at startups. We take a close look at finance functions within various startup companies by talking to finance leaders that are in there day in and day out. We chat startup finance, metrics, operations, and everything in between. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Steve Isom, VP of Finance at Flywheel, a WordPress hosting and management platform. Steve is responsible for finance, accounting, and long-term strategic planning. Prior to Flywheel, he was the Senior Director of Finance and Strategy at Cyber Reason, a cybersecurity SaaS company where he led the $120 million Series D capital raise process. Before joining the startup world, Steve did a stint as an investor at Northbridge Growth Equity and an investment banker at Jefferies. And so without further ado, let's hear from Steve Isom, VP of Finance at Flywheel. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on The Backbone. I really appreciate it. We've got lots to cover on the show, so let's jump right in. Um, You've held stints in investment banking at Lazard, TD, and Jefferies, and buy-side roles at Northbridge Growth Equity prior to making the jump to the operating side. You were the Senior Director of Finance and Strategy at Cyber Reason prior to you joining your current gig at Flywheel. So talk to me about your journey into tech and how it all started for you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I think really at a high level, I've always been interested in the intersection of technology and business. An embarrassing example was I think in second grade or so, I had a Casio calculator watch that I thought was super cool. And, And partially just because it was, you know, we were learning about math and I could just do it on, on my wrist and, and, also, I, I guess I was just a weird kid. And then, you know, in high school, I sold computers at Best Buy and and loved kind of gadgets and, and all the best tech. Um, and then I had a really defining experience in college at Boston College. I was part of a program called Tech Trek, um, which was really this course that had 20 masterclass sessions with senior executives, entrepreneurs, and, and venture capitalists. Um, a lot of them were BC alumni at firms from Apple to Zynga. And, and we spent a lot of time studying the tech industry, strategy, entrepreneurship, venture finance, and, and how companies really scaled over time. And you know, on that trip, we were lucky enough to meet with Phil, Phil Schiller, the head of marketing at Apple, and he showed us... Oh, wow. He showed us the first iPhone before it was released, and he certainly wasn't supposed to do that, but but he showed it to a small group of us. I really wanted to be kind of in the technology world, and I started in investment banking because I thought that it was kind of the great tra- training ground for business fundamentals, um, really taught hard work and, and, and really resilience. You know, you, you often hear people talk about investment banking on your resume as, as a badge of honor. And, and I really think of thinking of that way. I've spent my time uh, there. So definitely know uh, what you're talking about when you say that. Tell me about, you know, after you moved on from, from that investment banking side and into buy side, uh, you, you moved from there to Northbridge Growth Equity. Uh, what was that transition like? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a junior investment banker, <laughs> and, and you know this just as well as I do, you're you're oftentimes just compiling and presenting data to justify a decision that that 
most likely has already been made, <laughs> whether that's, you know, the valuation of the business, positioning it in the market. The, the stakes are really only high in the sense that there are big expectations from, uh, you know, your peers internally and your bosses internally about how hard you'll work and how accurate you'll be. But at the end of the day, if, if you work on a debt offering to fund an acquisition of a company that later goes bankruptcy because it was a bad fit and you took on too much debt, you know, no one, no one's criticizing the junior banker, right? You, you did your job. Yeah. And, and a lot of times that, you know, that same investment bank may be hired to do the restructuring. <laughs> um, so yeah, how that works sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So. I think the the stakes are just a little bit higher on the investing side. Um, it's not transactional based. You know, when you invest in a company, that company is now in your portfolio, um, and, it, and it doesn't go away, right? And until you exit that business, so I think that was that was the big difference for me of of moving out of the mindset of of being transactional and and really um, you know raising the stakes of the decisions and kind of even just the analysis that you're doing. Mm-hmm, that makes sense, and then. From that, so uh, you did the investment banking bit, then you went and did buy-side work uh, with Northbridge, and then you took the plunge into the operating side. And your first, I guess, operating gig was as a senior director of finance and strategy at Cyber Reason. Maybe tell me a bit about that transition into the operating side, and then we'll get into what Flywheel is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So... It may be cliche to say, but I think it, when you move to the operating side, you really see how the sausage is made, um, and, and and you see how how messy everything can be. Um, I think in both investment banking and and on the buy side, you're often seeing data and and materials that have gone through countless revisions. Um, you know, multiple set of eyes. You know, everything has kind of been prepared with the assumption that, you know, super smart, hardworking people are going to be analyzing it, analyzing it. And, and you go on the operating side and, and kind of that, that veil is lifted in a lot of ways and there's no filter and you kind of are just seeing how, how messy it, it can be. And similar to the move from banking to investing, I, I think the stakes just feel even higher, right? So, where on the investment side, you make an investment and that company is now in your portfolio. Well, the thing that you lose when you move to the buy side is you don't have portfolio diversification, right? So, so, yeah. so you, you're with that company. And, and I think that, that was kind of the big, you know, wake up call or, or change, so to speak. So, you know, you find yourself thinking like, okay, we're working on this problem and, and maybe I'm going to go work on another portfolio company or I'm going to go talk to some interesting new entrepreneurs that I have a meeting set up with. And and that's not what it's like when you're on the operating side, right? Like that problem doesn't go away until you fix right. it. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a very, uh, you know, good distinction that you made. If, you know, if let's say for whatever reason, one investment doesn't work out, well, that's fine. You've got probably nine or 10 other uh, portfolio companies that uh, are part of this fund. But when you're operating, that's it. That's that's the only company, uh, and and so um, tell me a bit about Flywheel. And you know that's that's where you are now. Uh, what is Flywheel? What is that all about? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I recently joined Flywheel um, as a VP of finance. Um, I'm, I think I'm in my third month now. And, and very simply, Flywheel helps creatives, whether those be web designers or web developers, do their best work. Um, and, and it's kind of a super simple statement, but really the core offering is a WordPress hosting platform. Um, so helping people um, host their, their websites online. Um, we also have a product called Local that's an easy to use local development platform. And really as a company, we're just focused on really good looking, simple tools that allow our customers to quickly build and launch and, and manage their WordPress sites. So about a th roughly a third of the internet um, is on, on WordPress, which is an open source technology. And, mm -hmm. and so there's a huge market opportunity and we're working with small agencies to big enterprise customers um, and, and really just taking the hosting and the technical aspects of having sites online and, and just taking that off of their plate so they can really focus on what they love of creating, you know, beautiful, highly functional, high performing sites. So I want to now drill into more of the things that we talked about in, in terms of your transition from banking to buy side and to now operating. We touched on some of these, but I want to dive a bit more deeper into yeah. that. And so how would you describe the kind of transition between each of those roles? You, you covered a, a bit of that, um, talking about, you know, portfolio risk versus not now. More specifically, what aspects or skills that you developed in your prior roles have helped you now as an operator? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, like I said before, the each transition, I think the stakes have just have felt a little bit higher, at least from a personal standpoint. Um, and that's not to you know discredit or disc or discount you know what you're doing in banking. You know, keep in mind I was a, a junior banker and, and kind of um, you know junior investor as well, and and kind of risen through the ranks on the the operating side. Um, the in terms of what I learned, you know. I talked about investment banking really being a great tra training ground for business fundamentals, um, finance, um, just long-term strategic thinking, positioning. But the, the biggest thing I took of the took away from investment banking was just, you know, uh, perseverance, um, working really, really hard and, and probably just simply put grit, right. Of, of, you know, being able to, to get that, you know, work from an MD at, at nine o'clock at night with the expectation that it's going to be done in the morning and, and not skipping a beat. Mm -hmm. There's just going to be very few, you know, work environments and no matter how, no matter how, how high, high intensity it is, that, you know, there, there's few places like that. So that kind of almost desensitized me in a certain way to, you know, expectations and, and the ability to work really hard. So I'm always kind of expecting, you know, someone to tell me, Hey, let's, let's try to do this in the, in the morning and by the morning. And, and usually it's, it's not that crazy. It's in a couple days or, or in a week. Um, so, so that's been, that's been, you know, one thing that's kind of put all, all the hard work I, now into perspective and then taking the investment banking experience and then adding on the, the work on the buy side, 
you know, the thing that I've really taken away is, is leveraging all available d- data to make decisions. And what I mean by that is there's some things that are just so a part of being an investment banker or being an uh, investor, um, like benchmarking and looking at public comp mm-hmm. and, and operational metrics that I think a lot of people who are, are in the startup world, like either don't necessarily know that information is readily available. They don't necessarily know that there are people that know how to uh, organize that data and present it in, in a um, in a way that you can really uh, absorb it. And then also like put your business in perspective. So I found myself at Cyberies and a lot of times just saying, you know, oh, well, I looked at the last 15 or 20 SaaS companies that went public and, and looked at, you know, these three metrics and here's kind of where we stack up in, a, in our in our life cycle as a business, you know, we're three years earlier than them, but this is where we are. And, and I think that context became super helpful. Um, and, and really understanding, you know, how you stack up across a really big peer set. Now, keep in mind that that peer set by its nature of publicly traded companies that had gone public recently is selecting a, a really high performing set, right? I, you're not, I wasn't necessarily pulling from the thousands of companies that don't make it to that level. Um, so you kind of have to go in eyes wide open of saying, if we want to get to this point. And then the, and then the second thing is kind of having the investor mindset about what drives value. Um, what do investors look like for? What do strategic acquire? look for in terms of equity value um, and and what are the levers that we have as operators to increase that value I think having kind of the banking and and investing experience really helped me distill those concepts and and really drive discussions with the management team around what we can do to to make the business more valuable. And, you know, a prior guest of the show, um, David Brennan, CFO at Ecobee, uh, mentioned that, you know, a number by itself in, in finance doesn't mean anything. You want the magnitude, which is the number. Yeah. You then want kind of the relative nature of that number. So what happened compared to a prior period? And then you want to see the trend. And so, that, yeah, that really hits home to to what you said about the benchmarking and, and those types of aspects of, of that, uh, bringing yeah. those over. That's certainly a, a more eloquent way of saying what I was trying to say. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now I want to talk a bit more about, uh, you know, thinking about investing as uh, now being on the other side, I guess, as an operator. So at some reason, the company raised $100 million from SoftBank while you were there. Flywheel uh, has raised $9 million this year. And so in today's landscape, there's a lot of private capital out there and investors are always looking for great companies to deploy all of that capital. And so sometimes uh, these investors are eager to write bigger checks than what the company actually needs. And so as the finance leader who's been on the other side, how do you handle that? And what considerations do you make when determining the amount of capital to raise? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a, it's just obviously a, a really uh, topical question um, with with the likes of SoftBank, especially out there um, writing really big checks. Um, that $100 million Series D uh, that we raised while I was at CyberReason actually ended up being $120 million. But oh, you know, wow. what's an additional $20 million? Um, you know, I think in growth investing specifically, you, you hear the phrase putting fuel on the fire. And I think what's happening right now is that there's a lot of businesses who, who may have a single or, or a couple embers and, and not necessarily a roaring fire and, and they're getting doused with jet fuel so to speak. Um, and I'm not sure that it's necessarily right. I think, you know, you really have to think about the fundamentals of the business, um, especially when you're raising kind of these big, massive growth rounds. And, and I look specifically at unit economics, right? Uh, you know, do we really understand at the unit level um, um, what it costs to acquire and serve a, serve a customer? Um, what's the margin profile? Um, you know, what's the size of the opportunity? How big's the market? And and what's the competitive landscape? Right? You know, is there is there a time component? Is there a time component that you know you you need to get get to market faster? Um, I think you know the one thing that maybe is less prevalent on the east or west coast and and more more prevalent here in in the midwest where i where i moved to to uh to work here at at flywheel is is this idea of you know what what's the goal right like what is the goal goal of the business mm -hmm. and and i think a lot of bootstrapped entrepreneurs or capital efficient entrepreneurs really put a premium on optionality Right. So, you know, what are what are the various outcomes that we uh, we can have as a business and and what what do those look like? And, you know, what what people don't always talk about is, you know, when you're raising those big rounds, all you're doing is moving the goalpost. Right. So if you raise over two hundred million dollars, you know, if you sell for three hundred million dollars, no, no one's going to be super excited about that. Right. You're, you're barely taking care of your preference stack. But if you've raised $14 million and you say sell for $150 million, you know, everyone is really happy, investors, employees, yeah. et cetera. So, so I think it's it, a lot of it's just, you know, what, what are the goals of the business? How big do you think it's going to be? And, and how far out are you comfortable moving, moving those goalposts? I think that's a mindset that oftentimes people aren't talking about, right? You're not reading a lot of, you're not reading a lot of, VC posts talking about here's how to build a great hundred million dollar business, right? It's the multi-billion dollar business, but you know, you can look at the data. Where do acquisitions happen, right? It's in the, you know, the vast majority of tech M&A is, you know, sub 250 million, right? There's, there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's a few transactions every year in the above that and then how many companies actually make it public and what does it take to be a public company so i, I just think there needs to be a, a real eyes wide open view of, of what you're signing up for um you know a company a company like flywheel right yeah, as you can imagine with all the with all the capital out there you know getting calls all the time from from people who who are have the job that i used to have and and you know, for their fund economics to make sense, they don't want to write a $9 million check. That's not interesting. Right. 
them, right? They want to write a $30 million check um, and the ability to put more money in. So, so oftentimes the, the mandate of the, the venture and growth funds um, and, and the economics don't, uh, they don't necessarily line up with, you know, a capital efficient, either bootstrapped or, or close to bootstrapped entrepreneur. So I think that alignment is, is super important. You have that unique position, uh, you know, have been on the other side, uh, like you said, and, and so you know that, you know, it doesn't make sense for their fund, but, um, for, you know, most finance leaders or, or most entrepreneurs, it's hard to gauge that. It's hard to really understand that uh, when someone is kind of calling you, you know, once a quarter and saying, hey, would love to invest in your company, love what you're doing. Oh, you only need 10? Why don't we just put in 30, right? Like it's, it, yeah. but then, like you said, you move that goalpost, like the bar just gets higher and higher. Like now, the the hundred million dollar outcome is not as exciting um, than w if you were bootstrapped, right? So yeah, absolutely. And I think I think there's a couple things. One, you know, as that founder co-founder, it's super important to understand liquidation preference, right? <laughs> um, oh, and, yeah. and understanding that, you know, I, I just read today, you know, CEO of Qualtrics said. You know, a few years back, you know, why are you con congratulating me on raising VC money? It's like congratulating me on taking out a mortgage, um, <laughs> para paraphrasing there. And, and I think it's also funny because, you know, in the years past, it may be a company needing five to 10 million of primary and you've got the, the growth guys coming in and saying, well, how about 30 and we'll give you some liquidity and, and this and that. The only difference is in 2018, you know, the company that may be looking to raise 20 or 30, SoftBank is coming in and saying, well, what if we said we could give you 250 million? What would you do with that? <laughs> right? So it's just orders of magnitude different. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, going back to your analogy of the embers and jet fuel, which I think is a great one, by the way, is like, well, now you're just dousing, you know, so much, you know, uh, fuel on maybe one or two embers, and it's not yeah. going to become this like explosive growth engine as soon as you do that. Yeah, and there's the there's the old adage, you know, you raise the money, you'll spend the money, right? I, I, right. And, and you'll find you'll find ways to, to spend that money. And it, mm -hmm. you may not know the ROI. Yeah, it may not be the most efficient spend. So then what considerations would you suggest making like now as a as an operator to determine the amount of capital to raise? The, the one thing that I, I find myself here at Flywheel talking a lot about is, is the, the unit economics and, you know, specifically looking at, um, you know, the cost to acquire a customer versus the lifetime value of that customer. And, and you know, oftentimes in, in the classic VC world, you know, hey, we've got a super high LTV to CAC. That only means one thing, you're not spending enough money, right? And, and you need to... <laughs> You need to spend into that and, and and see what that looks like. So I do think that on one hand, even though I'm, you know, supposed to be the uh, responsible uh, stewards of, of the capital is, is, you know, finding areas where it may make sense to spend more. Um, but, 
you know, given that we're a subscription business and you're from a, from a lot, you know, cash perspective, you're, you're penalized for, for growth in the, in the early t- periods until those individual customers pay for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think you, you just have to make sure everyone's on the same page about what the trade-offs are. Hey, we're going to, we're going to spend, we're going to pour a bunch more money into sales and marketing. It's going to um, require us to burn additional cash capital than we originally thought in the next 18 to 24 months. Um, but we really think that if we continue to retain or upsell customers at the current, uh, the, or at this current status quo, that this is really going to pay off for us. Um, but let's also think about what this means. What's the amount of capital it, it uh, is going to take us to get, you know, cash flow break even or or cash flow positive, and and what are the those risks? And I think you know, especially when you have a business that has multiple co-founders um, or or large stakeholders, making sure there's alignment across that group, I think, is super important. I think a lot of really successful businesses um, have have co-founders that that complement each other. Um, but mm-hmm. in, in that dynamic, you often have very different risk profiles. So I think it's important, it's important to, um, make sure that everyone's aligned. Now, growth equity investors hear something like that and they think opportunity, right? Because, oh, maybe we can take one of <laughs> one or two of the co-founders out and, and, and really double down on, on the, on the co-founders, you know, however many there are who, who want to, grow this thing to be really big. Um, but, but I think, I think that's, that's the trade-off and, and, you know, Hey, is, is 50% growth interesting to you or, or do do you want to be growing 75% uh, or, or it's not even worth it or a hundred percent or a hundred percent plus. If I told you we could be a 20% grower, but you know, 20% cash flow margins, is that exciting to you? And, Mm -hmm. And I think it depends on the market. It depends on the entrepreneurs and depends on the competitive landscape. You know, here, here at Flywheel, um, you know, we're operating in a really, really big market. You know, I talked about almost, uh, almost a third of the entire internet is on WordPress. Right. The internet is really big. <laughs> so, um, and, and there's a bunch of kind of legacy or, or low value hosting providers out there that, that, um, that aren't super interesting. And, and then there's kind of the high end of the market and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of greenfield. So, you know, these questions are, are exactly kind of what we're talking about internally right now. And I think we'll continue to talk about um, as long as, as, as we're going at it. The kind of key take home message there is that, you know, venture capital or, or funding is, is great, but it's not for every business and you really need to think through the business that you operate in the unit economics of that business and whether or not the additional capital that an investor is trying to throw your way is worth taking. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, there, there's the types of businesses that wouldn't be able to raise money anyway. Right. So you don't even have to make that Mm -hmm. decision. It'll be made for you. But I think that the hard part is, you know, those, the businesses that investors will back and, and will back very aggressively. So Steve, in your opinion, what is the importance of the finance function at a technology company? I think this has shifted a lot in, in talking with 
CEOs, entrepreneurs, and I think the the expectations have changed. And and to be a truly great finance leader, um, it's just change what you need to do. I think there's a bigger responsibility than you know preparing the financials, paying the vendors, collecting from customers, right? Like I think what what CEOs are looking for is the strategic finance professional, um, someone that is going to be proactive rather than reactive. Um, I jokingly say, you know, you want someone who is um, a business professional first and who just has the financial acumen um, as opposed to someone who who is just so lost in, in the numbers and, you know, the, the old accountant in the back room who isn't really in, in engaging with the business. Um, I, I spend just as much as my time talking to the leadership team about how do we measure the business? How do we goal the business? Um, what are, what are the financial implications of, of initiatives that we're doing? And, and, and it's super important to, to be the type of person who, who is, is focused on the dollars and not the cents right? So no one, you don't want to be the person who, who is, you know, harping about, you know, these, this minutia and, and you're just going to instantly lose credibility with, with your peers and, and in the business, right? So um, I, I try to, you know, it's the see the forest through the trees type mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, but I, I think that the expectations to, and to, to be a really good finance finance leader in, in 2018 is you just have to be much deeper in the business um, and and the operations um, as opposed to just a reporting function or um, you know the guy that always says no to things. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. There's it's a lot more all encompassing, um, and and one of the inspirations for calling this podcast the backbone is because I truly believe that finance serves as the backbone of any organization and offers the opportunity to see various departments within an organization and bring all of those together, serving as as the backbone. I think that's I think that's exactly right. You have in the finance function, you kind of have unparalleled access to the rest of the company. You get to see the impacts of the decisions um, that are being made across departments. And you really have a responsibility to push kind of the the other leaders to understand those uh, impact the decisions and, and the impacts that they're making, and then also providing them with kind of a framework or a mindset to how to think about those things, right? So, um, you know, I, I am oftentimes asking people, well, what if we, you know, what if we spent more? What if we hired more? And I think it's counterintuitive um, to a lot of people who think, you know, what what the historical finance professional should be doing, um, but you know, it's, it's being focused on long-term value creation as a, as opposed to, you know, uh, short-term cost cutting. Mm, That makes sense. So what I'd like to do now is jump into our quick fire round and the way this works is I'll ask you a couple of questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? All right. That sounds great. All right. Let's do it. So what is your favorite uh, online resource for all things startup finance related? Yeah, not a probably not a super unique answer, but love Saster, Jason Lincoln, Harry Stebbings, everything that those guys are doing. Yeah, that's definitely a great resource for sure. Your favorite productivity hack? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, I would say iterating. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is I'm constantly experimenting with 
you know, Wonderless, Evernote, Slack, Trello, uh, emailing myself list, and I'm always trying something new. And usually when I find myself just resorting back to just sending emails to myself or actually writing down on post-its, I know that I need to reevaluate what I'm doing and, and maybe explore something now. Gotcha. And what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? Yeah, that's a hard one because I have two young kids at home. Um, so um, something that uh, Ariana Huffington told Reed Hoffman uh, recently on his podcast was the importance of relentlessly prioritizing and then also living with incompleteness. Mm. So um, I, I would say that, you know, I, I'm I, that question doesn't super apply apply to me in the sense that um, I oftentimes will just hit pause, go home, you know, put my kids to bed, sign back online and, and keep working. Nice. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, what's one tech jargon that makes you cringe? I just feel like um, AI and machine learning is just something that you, there's no business I, you know, not doing it. Um, and you know, there's a funny meme on on Twitter that's, you know, when you're fundraising, it's AI. When you're hiring, it's ML. <laughs> when, you're actually, when you're actually implementing, it's just logistic regression. That's funny. Um, yeah, but you know, I I'm I'm not doubting that there are real AI and machine learning companies, but it seems like it's uh overhyped at this point fair enough and what's the best advice that you've received so far in your career yeah um so i would say less uh less like you know actual like advice or or a saying or anything but more so observed behavior from people that i really respect um and i think that's don't take yourself too seriously um i think um you know be serious when you when you need to be um but you know you should be enjoying what you're doing you should be able to laugh at work you should be able to give both other people and yourself a hard time and and i think it just will will make people you know enjoy working with you a lot more and it'll make you enjoy what you're doing a lot more wow that that's uh that's really great advice and thanks for sharing that uh well steve this has been a fascinating chat i've really enjoyed it a lot um i think you had a very interesting perspective you know being in banking then moving into uh investing uh, on the growth side and now operating i think that allowed to give this conversation a lot of flavor and a, and really perspective that we haven't had on on the show yet so i really appreciated that and and really talked talking about, you know, when is the right time to raise, what considerations you should be making and why you shouldn't just take uh, all the capital that investors might be willing to throw your way. So enjoyed that a lot. And thanks again for coming on The Backbone, Steve. I really appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Well, take care. Bye now.